Thank you. A God who uh, doesn't change, theological term is immutable. Um, in fact, the, the theological issue is that God cannot change. Um, and this makes the, the issue of spiritual warfare, I think, a little bit more... Um, that clarifies it a little bit, okay? I said last week that we are in a spiritual war, okay? We're in a spiritual battle, and it's raging around us, and we're in it, and um, it has been going on, like, really forever. It's always been happening, but now it seems like it is ramped up, and it's just moving aggressively, and, and we feel it, maybe sense it more, Um but the reality is that we make, as Christian people, a lot of times spiritual warfare this mysterious thing that we can't quite define or pinpoint or understand, and, and it's just kind of this ambiguous sense that there's some spiritual battle going on. But Scripture says uh, that we understand the reality of spiritual warfare to be that Satan is at the heart of it. He, he is a real enemy who is really alive, who really has... Uh, an intention and a motive and a power and in fact the Bible says that he's the God of this world. I've said over and over and over uh, I think maybe maybe too much but that the reason why he's the God of this world is not because he has the authority but because that we have ascribed to him uh, by majority rule uh, our allegiance okay, as a world. But his method is very clearly described in scripture as being a deceiver, right? Jesus said he is a liar and the father of what? Lies, okay? And in fact, lying is his native language. So Jesus says that this is the, the nature of his warfare. This is how he's going to do uh, battle with believers and then with the rest of the world as well, uh, is that he's going to introduce uh, lies and schemes and misconceptions and misunderstandings and twist uh, even the word of God. And so what we see uh, when Jesus was uh, battling Satan in his own temptation in the wilderness was that Satan would actually bring uh, to Jesus in order to tempt him scripture, right, to try to get him to think the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And Jesus would always return with what? Scripture. Three different times Satan Satan didn't say things that were not the, in the Bible. He said things that were in the Bible. He just tried to twist it and manipulate it and gear it towards the wrong thinking. And Jesus brought it back to the overall nature of who God is and the understanding of what the right interpretation was. Here's what's going on. Okay, We're talking about hope and restoring hope and trying to understand what's going on in our day Okay, as a result of largely... Not, in, not completely, but largely COVID um, and all the things that happened because of that, the, the tension that it created, the stress that it created, the conflict that it created, the, the, the weird place that we ended up culturally, isolation and all the disagreements that we had over the whole thing, okay? So many things, and it's still kind of continuing in, in some way today. We are left with ultimately a spiritual battle. This is what the, the fundamental issue is, that we are dealing with a spiritual battle that Satan is trying to 
fob, God's people, largely, of hope. And how Satan is affecting this in some way, understand it in a, in a weird way, and I'll, I'll explain that. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Anybody rejoicing in their sufferings? It's kind of hard for us to grasp this, but here's what he says. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. I'll explain that process a little bit. But then it says this, and this is what into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Hope does not disappoint us. That sounds like a contradiction of everything that you know and experience in your life. Because what disappoints you the most is when you get your hopes up and then you don't have it fulfilled. Would you disagree with that? But here's what Satan has, I think, done, is he's twisted the word hope, what, what the biblical understanding of hope is, into um, what it really is in our experience is expectation. Biblical hope is not the same thing as your personal expectation for your life. And this is, this is what we're caught up in. I have an expectation for how I think things should go, how I want things to be. And they don't always end up that way. In fact, they rarely end up that way. <laughs> right? There's al it's almost always a miss or less than or not quite what I, I thought it would be. And yet we use this word hope all the time. We constantly use the word hope. But it's not really biblical hope. It's really personal expectation. But then we attach a spiritual meaning to it. And this is, I think, how Satan twists this around and uses it against us is we, we believe or we think that God owes us something because he's God and he can and he's good and what I want should be okay with God. And we begin to transfer our personal expectation onto God and what he should do and then when those things don't happen then we're mad at God instead of what hope actually is which is that we will suffer that's a promise amen to that yay we're going to suffer anybody glad about that you're going to suffer okay that's just kind of a guarantee but through that suffering what's going to happen is in faith you're going to trust God's character and his nature and you're going to persevere. And then as you persevere, what happens is you build character. And, and what we're talking about is Christian character. And that Christian character, as it matures into a, a formulation of a, a authentic Christian person, uh, means that you have hope because you know who God is. And now you know what his promises are. And you depend on God to do what he promised, not what, what you expect. And you have actually put to death your expectation instead you have believed in what God has said he would do 
Is that worth talking about a little bit more? All right. Well, we're going to, whether you want to or not. All right? So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to be in Isaiah 40, verse 28 and following. And then let's stand as we read God's word this morning. Let's not put it on the screen because, again, I am breaking the rules. I am using a different version than, um, than normal. This is the NIV um, version. And primarily the reason why is because the ESV made a mistake. Okay? It didn't use the word hope where it should have. And uh, it, the NIV did. So, um, and let me tell you this. This is not like proof texting. The word in Hebrew is hope, but ESV thought it just sounded better to say it a different way, and I don't like how they did that. So, okay, sorry. You didn't need to know all that, but here's what it says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And Father, our prayer today is that we would have that kind of perseverance, Lord, that kind of waiting on you and you to fulfill your promises, not our expectations, Lord. Even though you've called us and, and you've encouraged us to to pray and to ask for things and to request things, Lord, you also say your will be done, not ours. Sometimes we get those things mixed up and we don't know the difference. And because we don't always know the difference, sometimes we actually fall into a misconception, a, 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 even a lie. And it can damage our faith and it can damage our witness. And Lord, we pray that today you would restore hope a right hope, a right hope and the right object, that we trust you, that we're waiting on you to do what you said, what you promised, Lord, and to learn what you promised and to understand who you are and depend on that absolutely and to put aside anything that would hinder us from that and to put to death anything that would come in the way of it. Father, we, we are committed to that this morning, that you would be exalted as God, ruler of this world, ruler of our lives, ruler of this universe, ruler of eternity, and that we have the need <laughs> to make sure that we are putting you in that right place, not thinking that you have to do what we say. Lord, help us to do what you say, to trust you to do what you said. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we just commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I need to uh, share with you a little bit about Isaiah's story. I'm sure you've heard the, the name Isaiah, wrote one of the uh, longest uh, books in the Old Testament. Um, and it is filled with prophecy about um, God's judgment uh, God's holiness filled with prophecy about Jesus coming and all those different things, but we don't always quite grasp where Isaiah is in the history of Israel. So um, he is a prophet at around 700 
B.C., okay, 700 years before Jesus came, he's a prophet in Judah. He's a prophet during the, the reign of King Hezekiah. And so how many of you know who Hezekiah is? Raise your hand. How many Bible students we got here? A few. Okay, so many of you don't know who Hezekiah is. Uh, I bet you'll probably know if I tell you one little story about Hezekiah. There's a time in Hezekiah's life uh, when he was sick and he was dying. And Isaiah actually went to Hezekiah and he told him, get your house in order, you're going to die. Okay, and so Hezekiah, he's weeping, he's on his bed, he turns his face to the wall and he just prays, God, just remember all the good things that I've done for Israel. And then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and it said that Hezekiah has humbled himself. He's pleased me. Go back to Hezekiah and tell him he will live. I will give him how, how many more years? Anybody? 15 more years. You knew that. I'll give him 15 more years. And so Isaiah goes back, gives him, you know, tells him he's going he's gonna to survive. He says, make some kind of a poultice thing, put it on your wound, whatever's going on there, and it's going to be healed. And he gives him a prophecy about how he's going to know because the son's going to actually uh, go back on the steps, right? So God does all this in Hezekiah's life. We, we understand. Okay, so what that tells you, though, is a few things. Hezekiah is, a large part, a godly king, okay? In a time when there's not a lot of godly kings, Hezekiah is a godly king. He's one of the dare I say, most godly kings in Israel's history. He's, he's significantly a godly king. He, not only does God grant him 15 more years, and remember that he didn't ask for 15 more years. He didn't ask for God to spare his life. He just said, God, please remember what I've done. And God granted him that. So whenever you're sick and you're like, oh, I'm going to pray the prayer of Hezekiah. Okay, <laughs> listen. He didn't, he didn't ask for 15 years. He just, God, remember what I did. So what's going on in the history of Israel at this time is that the Assyrians are um, ruling the world, basically. They're conquering nations left and right. They are a horrifically aggressive and violent culture. And they are winning everywhere all over the world. They are conquering nations left and right. They have just conquered uh, northern Israel. Okay? And what they do, they come in, they kill a bunch of people, but then they take the people that are left and they scatter them all over the world and they call this exile. They've done this with the ten tribes of Israel. They've scattered them all over the world. They brought in other people from other nations, planted them there in Israel, in northern Israel. And so that's, that's the case because northern Israel had become so defiled by its sin. Now, the Assyrians are looking to southern Israel to do the same thing there. In fact, King Sennacherib comes into southern Israel, which we call Judah, and surrounds Jerusalem. Hezekiah's king. Isaiah is there. He's talking to Hezekiah because he's an advisor to the king at this time. Okay, And what's going on is that Hezekiah is praying. He's dealing with the, these, these people. They're, they're threatening him. He won't give up. He's trusting the Lord. And then... By the miracle of God, by the power of God, what happens is astounding. You go to 2 Kings chapter 19. You can read this for yourself. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers 
wake up dead. Okay, they don't wake up. But <laughs> the angel of death comes in, judges, kills, puts to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight, rescues uh, Judah, rescues Jerusalem, rescues Hezekiah, and Sennacherib the king leaves. He's like, all right, I get, I get it. And, he, and they're not conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Israel is not conquered by the Assyrians. Even though they're conquering everybody else, they're not. The, the, the amazing thing of, of Hezekiah is that in his day, there was so much wealth, there was so much peace, and even though they're dealing with the Assyrians, God protects them. Right? They have all this, these things going on for them. And Isaiah is writing about some of these things in these chapters. Okay, And so in chapter 39, at the end of chapter 39 of Isaiah, he begins to tell about this story that after the rescue and after all this stuff has happened and Hezekiah is doing great and the nation is doing great, another envoy uh, comes to uh, Israel from Babylon. And at that time, they have no clue who these people are. Like, this is just like, who? The Babylonians or what? And they come in. They're like, hey, uh, we're, we're a, a nation that's kind of far away, kind of close. You know, we'd love to just uh, see what you got, what's going on. I mean, I don't know what Hezekiah is thinking. Like, oh, sure, come and see all my treasures. And he shows them all over the palace and all over the temple and all the wealth that he's got and everything else. He shows them all around. Like, it's kind of like window shopping. Like, you don't get this, but... So what happens is that Isaiah, um, this is verse 5, he comes to Hezekiah and he says, uh, Hear the, the, the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come. Okay, so he's prophesying now. This is the word of the Lord. The, the time will surely come when everything in your palace, all that your fathers have stored up until this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Okay? Here's part of what you have to understand. Even though um, Hezekiah is a seemingly and in, in, in argument, argumentatively, arguably, <laughs> get that right, a godly king, even though Israel is going through a time of prosperity and peace and reform, their hearts are not quite, quite where they need to be with the Lord. There's still sin going on in their hearts. There's still sin going on in the nation, and they will certainly be judged. A hundred years in the future, but they're going to be judged. And he's prophesying about that, and he's going to lay this all out, and we're going to see it in the coming up chapters. What do you think Hezekiah's response to something like that would be? Like, oh no, what do I do? Right? What did you think? How many of you are in your Bible right now? You know what he says. Verse 8. This is what Hezekiah says. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Hezekiah replied, he, he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. There will be peace and security in my lifetime. I'm not worried about 
that next generation or two or down the road or what's going to happen. I'm not going to worry about that because I'm, I got what, what I want right now. And so the very next chapter, chapter 40 and, and onward, Isaiah begins to outline the nature of God and his power and his glory and his goodness and the nature of idols and idol worship and false worship and false gods. And I don't know if that, you make a connection here, if you understand what's going on, but what's going on is that back then, 700 years before Christ, so 2,600 years ago, right, 2,700 years ago, they struggled with the very same thing that we're struggling with today. You have people who think that they know the Lord, think that they're being blessed by God, and would, you, would anybody argue that America is significantly blessed? We, we're wealthy, we have peace, we have freedom, we have opportunities, right? Let's, let's say that we have uh, one of the greatest periods of peace and prosperity of any nation of any time in the world, in all history. I don't think that that's hard to argue. And simultaneously, we are spoiled and... Um, we are depressed, unsatisfied, disenchanted, hopeless as a nation. I don't know if that's, maybe that's not arguable. Maybe that's just a perception that I seem to have. But uh, we have a very entitled mentality. We believe that we deserve everything that we have. We think that, that we should have all these blessings and we should have more. And in fact, we want even more than what we have. And I'm not saying that it, there's anything wrong. There isn't anything wrong with freedom and peace and prosperity and comfort. And those, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are blessings. What's wrong is the heart of the Jewish people in Isaiah's day and many people today, which is that we expect those things, and as soon as we don't have those things, we're mad at God. And how dare he not provide more and better and continue and etc. and etc. And this is the heart of idolatry. It is, I am not necessarily worshiping God for who he is, I'm worshiping God for what he can do for me right now. Worldly expectation personal fulfillment. So let me, uh, let me redefine um, idolatry in just a way that we can understand it. And, and I'm, I don't know. So I, I always hesitate to you know, make myself the hero of anything because I'm really not. And I know that. But, but, 
Last year, I had an experience that confirmed my faith. Anybody ever have an experience that confirms your faith? It's a wonderful thing. It's an awesome thing. Um, I've talked about it once or twice. Last year, I had a pulmonary embolism. I didn't know it was a pulmonary embolism, but that's what it was. I was coughing up blood, and I mean, I'm, and I know it's gross, but I was spitting globs of the darkest red, you know, it, blood clots, basically. Cough it up and spit it out. I mean, I, and I looked at that, and I remember seeing this, this blood red glob on the pavement, and I just thought, that's not good. <laughs> but I literally thought, or I felt like, I felt no fear. I thought, that's not good, but in my heart I was not concerned. And not because I thought, oh, I'll survive this, or that's okay, it'll be fine, I'll, I'm not worried. I, I, I believed, or I thought I understood that that was a very bad sign that could be lung cancer. I mean, that was my first thought. I got something that's potentially terminal. I really believe that it, it really could have been something terminal. And I was okay with it. And it confirmed what I knew or I thought that I believed. God is real. Jesus really is my Savior. I have trusted him completely. I'm going to heaven when I die. And for now, I'm going to be as faithful as I can possibly be. And the rest is up to him. And I can't control it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a person, and I'm going to be really honest, I'm a person who kind of, in the back of my mind, always thought that I would live a pretty healthy life until like 90 and then just die. And now, I have no idea. It kind of probably freaks my family out sometimes because I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to live to be an old person. I really don't. That kind of, it, it'll get your attention when you have something like that happen. Because pulmonary embolisms are fatal 30% of the time. I didn't know that. So, here's the other side of that coin. I've walked through illnesses with people, terminal illnesses with people, and I've seen the fear and the concern and the terror and the questions and the why, why did God allow this kind of thing come up in people's hearts. And what I understand is, is that what's going on here is not just a, a what was me kind of thing or a question mark. It's a I deserve to have perfect health until the moment I die. And if God doesn't provide that, then I'm not sure if I want to trust him or love him or does he exist or how come he didn't give me... And people will compare themselves with other people who lived a long life and didn't have any health concerns and they say, well, how come they get to do that and they're not as good as me and I was better than them and I, and I need to be around for my kids and I need to be around for my grandkids and I need to make sure that I accomplish all these things. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this tipping point that whatever situation in life is going to happen is going to clue you in on which side you're on. Idolatry 
is not what we've always told you it is, okay? Uh, prioritizing something above God, etc. Oh, look at your checkbook. If you wrote some, you know, more checks to whatever Walmart than you did to the church, then somehow you're an idolater. And you know, that's, <laughs> it's not quite the right concept. The right concept, I think, is that we have this expectation for our life and we expect that God's going to provide that and make that happen. And, and when he doesn't, now we have a crisis of faith. The crisis of faith is whether or not I'm going to trust that God's plan is better than my plan. And if you will trust him and not commit idolatry, what you're going to do is say, it is well with my soul. Health, job, family, culture, whatever's going on, I'm going to trust God in it. And my expectation for how I think it should work, I'm going to work towards it, I'm going to pray for it. It's okay, you can try to improve your situation, that's fine. Work out, eat right, you know, get it, work a job and, and pay off your debt and, and do everything you can to have a nice life that's fine. Do that. But guess what? You, you can work out, eat right, be as healthy as possible, and you can still die of something that you couldn't control. You can do everything right and still have a situation that come at you that you, you didn't plan or control or have anything to do with. Somebody else can wreck your life. Somebody can harm your child. Somebody can do something malicious to you that this, you know what I'm saying? And we have to still get to the point where God is still God and I still believe that he, I can trust him no matter what the situation is. And so Isaiah, he's going to talk about this all through chapters 40 through chapter basically 53. Okay, and, and what he's getting at is the heart of, and this is what he says, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard who God is? This is who God is. The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow tired. His understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and the young men stumble and fall. Anybody have a little kid or a little grandkid, and they're like, man, I wish I had, I had their energy? Right? I've, how many grandparents have said that so often? I wish I had their energy. Okay? Even that little two-and-a-half, three-year-old that just never stops, they still, they still crash at some point. And, and that's not exactly what this is referring to. This is referring to the fact that I have hope in God. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. You can go through anything because God will be with you through anything. In chapter 42, he brings it to his, I, th I think, the point, which is that here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Who is that? 
Anybody? Jesus? Anybody else agree with that? Are you guys not sure? Like you think I'm punking you or something? Is that still a term? Am I like 10 years behind? I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Justice on the earth is that he paid the price for your sin. He provided salvation for anyone and everyone who would trust in him, believe in him, put their faith in him, receive him as Lord and Savior. Now, here's what the Bible tells us from beginning to end. Here's what you and I are dealing with. This world and everyone in it is fallen, but we were made to be perfect. You were made for perfection but we don't experience perfection anywhere. In any, any mode or operation of this world, you do not experience perfection, but it's in your heart to desire it because you were made for it. Here's what I'm saying about a, a right relationship with God that is hopeful and idolatry, which is hopeless, which is this. I was made for, for, for perfection. Jesus gives me that. And he promises me that I will have it one day in eternity. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That was what my hope was when I thought I was dying. Okay? I believed that there was hope because I believed in eternal, in eternal life. And that it was guaranteed because of Jesus. Not just a wishful thinking, but a guaranteed promise that God said to me and that I knew because his word said it. And I had claimed that for myself. Okay, that is the hope that every single person can have. Guarantee of eternal life. Now, here's the other part of it. I have to put aside and really put to death my expectation and claim something else in its place, which is faithful to represent Christ regardless of my situation. This is what we were made for. I'm not just made for eternity. I'm looking forward to it, but I, was, I am living and existing in a time, in a place right now. You don't get to forfeit that. You don't get to skip over it. You don't get to give it to somebody else. Nobody can take your place in, in the world where you're at, the one that you occupy. And your job, my job, is to represent Christ. As weakly as we do, as faltering as we do, as back and forth and stumbling as we do, but seeking to be faithful, to show people around us, no matter if I'm, my situation is what I wanted it to be or not, this is how you do it as a Christian. I, I might not have all the answers, and I might not always be as strong as I want to be, I might not always have the confidence that I wish that I could have, but I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to seek to represent him, and I'm going to seek to point other people to him. In this day, 
in the day that the world is so full of lies and confusion that it needs a few people to stand up and say, here's the truth, it's Jesus Christ. And people can fall and falter, but I'm going to stand on the truth of God's word. Amen? I want to do something really, I think, important this morning, which is I want to, as we close, commission some people. Last week, I talked about our young people um, in primarily in our high schools, junior highs, um, our students that are really dealing with a weight of despair. I think that it's like a pandemic itself. Everybody's commissioned, okay? It, when you leave this place, I hope you, everybody understands you're commissioned. Co-mission means we're together on a mission. We are with you on a mission. Um, but I want to really pray for um, and single out some people, which would be um, our teachers, uh, those who are working in our schools, those who are, whether you're, you know, sweeping the floor, serving food in the classroom as an aide, as a teacher, I, I just want to pray for you that God would give you a hope and a strength and a perseverance and a his Holy Spirit, I mean, really is what we're asking. But that when you step into your classroom, when you step into the hallway, when you step into the gym, whatever context you're engaging with those students, that you understand that you're stepping into that realm as a believer who represents Jesus. And it might not be that you can preach the gospel, but you can be the gospel. Amen? So if that's you, would you stand? What I want to do, I want to have you stand. I'm going to pray for you right now. I, I, I don't want to call your name out, okay? You know who you are. If you're a teacher, if you're working in the school, whether it's grade school, high school, elementary, whatever, I mean, whatever capacity, if you're a coach, if you're an aide, if you're a janitor, just please stand. We want to pray for you. And here's what I want to promise you, if I can do that that every week we're going to commission a group of people. So this week it's our teachers. Next week it'll be something else. Some people are going to get commissioned four or five times by the time we're done, okay? We're all commissioned. But I'm going to pray for you especially because you have an awesome opportunity. And we, we want to partner with you and, and let you know that we appreciate what you're doing. Father, I lift up men and women who are in those realms, the school, the classroom, the hallway, the football field, wherever they go, cafeteria, the auditorium. Lord, would you bless them? Would you strengthen them? Would you help them to walk confidently knowing that you are with them, knowing that your spirit is with them, knowing that they have a, they have a, a countenance, a smile, a face, 
a word that brings the light of Christ to every dark corner of our schools. And maybe, maybe the Christian folks are not the majority, I don't know. But Lord, it doesn't matter. You can use a few people to make big changes, to do great things. And so we pray that you would help us to know that we are commissioned. We are on a mission with you, for you. This is why we were designed. It's what we were designed to do is because we were made to know you, made to help others to know you. Father, I pray for every teacher, Lord, even the ones that aren't represented here today, but I pray for your Holy Spirit to grab a hold of their heart that they might present Christ somehow and see some students, some young people rescued from darkness, from despair, from hopelessness, and brought into the light. And we're just going to continue to lift up and encourage and pray for those who are working with our students. We thank you for them. We pray your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Let's stand as we sing. I want to just encourage you this morning that you, no matter what your stage in life, station in life, position in this community, that you are commissioned. And I, I guess I have to say this just because it's, it'd be tragedy if I didn't. You can't be commissioned to, to represent Christ if you don't know him. And, and there may be some people here today who don't know Jesus. That the hope that we have, that I've expressed in eternal life, is something that is foreign to you because you haven't, you haven't claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And, and if that's the case, would you come and let us share that with you? And maybe trying to do that right here while the song's going on isn't the best time, but maybe just grab me or Seth or somebody that you know knows, say, would you come and talk to me? Can we, can we go somewhere and talk about what it means to follow Jesus? Because I need to know that. Amen. For the rest of us, the altar, again, place, <laughs> things come to die. And it may be your, your expectation for what you thought your life was going to be. And for whatever reason, it's not working out the way that you thought it should. And it's causing a battle in your faith. And you need to just come and say, God, I'm not going to try to control my life the way that I think I should. I'm going to let you have control of it. Amen? That's you this morning. Let the Holy Spirit lead you to that place and just commit it to him in Jesus' name. Let's sing.